Hey there, Freedom Fighter. You know, usually, Kenny, I got to tell you, usually when I say Freedom Fighters to my audience, it's because I do believe that the entrepreneurs that I'm talking to are creating a sense of freedom for their customers, for the people who work for them. And I know it because I lived in in South America when I started doing Mixergy, when when, when I really got serious about it. And I saw how many entrepreneurs there were looking towards the tech industry to save them, save them from a country that wouldn't allow them to exchange money with other countries, save them from places without enough opportunity. Any, anyway, I feel like this story, yes, it's about freedom for other people, but it's like what we're going to tell is a story of freedom for the man, for the entrepreneur, for the man in the ring, for you. And the reason I bring that up is I feel like you downplayed a little bit of your success at the end of your conversation with our producer. Let me read what, what she wrote about your conversation. You, you said to her, I do things that are safe. I may not be creating anything that's earth shattering. It's small, but I'm still creating value. Dude, you definitely are creating value. And the fact that you've created something for yourself that's giving you the sense of freedom to put this smile that I see on your face and let you wear that, that friend's hat that I see all the time. That's exciting. All right, let me introduce people uh, to you. Kenny Schumacher created a couple of businesses that we're going to talk about here. One of them that we'll probably spend the most time is called DelaSign. It's, uh, frankly, it's like a lot of other businesses. I don't think he invented this model, but the way the model works is you pay him a monthly fee and then you start demanding whatever design you need. And his team would design the stuff for you, right? You need a new cover for your blog post, boom. You go to them, they create it, animate it even for you. You put it on your site, then you ask for the next thing and you ask for the next thing. And it was a nice little monthly service that he built for himself. And then he sold the business and now he's investing and he's got another business that he's going to do a similar thing to. I like it. I want to find out how he got here. I want to find out what other businesses he thinks his method could be applied to. And I know that you're taking it to a new business. Um, and we can do it all thanks to two phenomenal sponsors that are backing me. And I love that they're backing me. The first is HostGator for hosting websites. I'll tell you later why you should go use them. And the second is a company that I should have followed up with them after they bought ads with me earlier in the year. Because they finally looked at their numbers and they said, Andrew, your people are signing up to use email marketing with us. We should have bought more ads. And so they bought a bunch of ads from me and you'll hear from them. Um, But I'll tell you now, it's send in blue for sending uh, out email. We'll talk about why that's a good email marketing company in a bit. But first, Kenny, good to have you, man. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So Delizine, like delegate your design work. How much money did you you sell the company for? Yeah, I sold it for uh, close to seven figures, I'll say. Um, yeah, my goal with this was kind of to have a safety net that I could then use to do further investments, uh, kind of expand my reach, expand my business reach. So uh, that definitely achieved that for me. I wonder why you even sold it at all. It it was cranking, right? It made sense. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people ask me that, like, why would you sell the business? It was growing. It was doing pretty well. It was very passive. So all those things were true. But for me, I had, I guess I had several goals that I wanted to achieve. Uh, one of those goals was to kind of have a safety net, um, you know, have passive income that I could rely on in the future so that I could focus on other businesses. And even if those businesses didn't work out super well, I'd still have that safety net that I could rely on for, you know, for my longevity, really. Um, the other thing that is maybe more relevant to lots of, I guess you'd say, small business owners is that um, I was always thinking about the business, uh, even if I wasn't actually actively working on the business. Uh, I was always thinking about the business. I was only spending maybe about two hours per day, probably less than that uh, on average day on the business. But I was always mentally thinking about the business, you know, before I went to uh, sleep, 
four hours, you know, hanging out with friends, even one hanging out with friends, I think about the business, things that could go wrong. Even though it was, it was two hours of work a day, but you would spend time thinking about it for what? What was on your mind with it? Yeah, I guess I'm the kind of person that always tries to think of how I can improve things. Uh, I'm always the kind of person mm -hmm. that maybe worries too much too, uh, thinking what if something went wrong. So uh, all those things kind of kind of kept me up at night. And uh, that was one thing that really added stress to my life. And I figured if I could then release this business and focus on other things, I would have so much more mental clarity, so much more mental energy to focus on, you know, my life first of all, as well as other businesses too. Did you also have this fear or did you have this fear of not having enough money? And now that you've got some money in the bank that that went away? Yeah. So that was a, a great reason why yeah. to sell because just having that clarity, having that <laughs> like confidence of, okay, you know, worst case, everything fails in the future, but I still have this uh, pretty big nest egg and, you know, I'm getting like interest income dividend income, you know, my investments growing over time. So I felt pretty confident. I want to find that. out what you invested in. You can, can I just say that you got roughly a million dollars that you got to invest? Am I right? Yeah, that's right. I've been fortunate enough to have like a lot of other assets too from other pretty good investments. But yeah, from this sale is about yeah, seven figures. Okay, so it's about that. And we'll, we'll talk about the other businesses that you that you had and where else you you've saved your money. But what are you investing it in? Yeah, so a lot of things really. Uh, of course, you know the the typical standard ones like stocks and you know all that kind of stuff and and crypto too. But one of the big things I'm pretty excited about is real estate. I have uh, three rental properties, uh, actually out of state investment properties, as well as an apartment complex I'm invested in too. Uh, so real estate is pretty huge. Are you for me. you got three houses <laughs> and an apartment complex with less than a million dollars to put down payment? Yeah. So apartment complex, I'm one of a, a few investors, but for the, the homes, yes, I'm a single owner. Uh, so I live in California, San Jose, California, pretty expensive place. So I'm not investing Very. here, but I am investing in Alabama actually, which is interesting enough, has lots of connotations, but uh, from a rental perspective, it's a pretty huge market. Are you, in, are you from Alabama? No, I've never been to Alabama actually. So you know what? We can't find a place to we have this ideal place that Olivia and I are looking for here in Austin, Texas. It would be a ranch where we can have some animals, but I also need to be close to the city so I can go and hang out with friends. And it needs to look good because my wife is into the design of the place. And dude, it's a pain in the ass. I was thinking though, why don't we just get a, a an inexpensive place in the city and then rent it out? We'll live in it for six months while we look for a place so we don't have to bounce from Airbnb to Airbnb and then we'll rent it out. But then I thought, do I need the headache of dealing with tenants? And if we decide tomorrow that we want to go live back in California, am I going to be able to do this remotely? How are you doing all that? Is it a lot of headache with tenants? Is it, uh, is it tough remote? Yeah, so I'm all about passive income, and that's kind of how I view real estate. I, I don't want to like actively spend time on it. I don't want to have to worry about tenants, don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff. So I have a property manager. Yep. They handle all that for me. It's uh, very, very simple for me. I've, I've maybe spent, not even exaggerating, I've maybe spent like three hours, four hours in total, like over the entire year on the, the three properties that I okay. have. So it's very passive for me. And you haven't had, I guess, an issue where someone does damage to the building or where in the middle of the night they, they break their trash compactor and then you've got to pay for it? So I've had some uh, some fixes that had to be done. Uh, nothing too significant, nothing too substantial. But, you know, fortunately, having the property manager in place, they handle all that for me. They, of course, screen the tenants to make sure there's no, you know, maybe more sketchy or tenants that are, are getting into our property. So all that, you know, having an expert in place really makes things uh, passive and, you know, it's, it's free of mind for me. 
That makes sense. So are you, how much of a down payment are you putting down on this stuff? I know we should get into the tech stuff. That's where the, that's where you make your money. This is where you're investing it, but I'd like to see what people are up to. How much, uh, how much of a down payment are you putting? Yeah, happy to share. So the first property I got was $140,000 in Huntsville, Alabama. Down payment was 20%. Oh, <laughs> that's what it costs to buy a place. Yeah. So pretty insane. If you're used to, you know, West coast, East coast home prices, it's uh very, very lower, very, very much lower than like, you know, any typical property in the U.S. at least. Dude, so I was talking with Sam Parr from The Hustle last night um, over dinner because we're both from San Francisco and now we're here in Austin. And he says, things are really cheap. And I say, I know. I found a place for $750. It looks really beautiful. All kinds of stuff going for it. And you're showing me that $750 is even expensive. So $150, you're putting 20% down. Okay. And then what do you get? What type of people do you get who who rent a place that costs you 150 is it a, yeah uh, like blue collar workers yeah so it's it's surprising but Huntsville where I'm investing is actually seen as like one of the fastest growing tech towns in the US uh, not just in Alabama but uh, lots of like tech companies are moving there you know it's, it's kind of known as like the the space town rocket town you know got, like NASA in there got uh, you know, Amazon space company is there. Facebook's data center is moving there. So lots of tech companies and investment is moving into there. So the tenants are, you know, largely tech people. Uh, of course, you got lots of blue collar people okay. there as well. But, you know, pretty relatively high income earners compared to what you'd expect for a, a 150K home. All right. So you're putting up $38,000, right? No, no $28,000, excuse me. Then is it cash flow positive after that, after paying... The mortgage? Yeah, that's right. So I'm I'm getting about so I follow the one percent rule, which is pretty much like the the monthly rent you receive should be about one percent of the home purchase price. So for that property, it's around like fourteen hundred per month in rent. I'm collecting the the mortgage, interest, tax, all that kind of stuff is about uh, you know maybe about half of that to be honest. So it's it's about like four hundred, five hundred or so per month that I'm netting cash flow. Uh, doesn't include like you know repairs and things like that as they come, but you can average around like four hundred to five hundred dollars of positive cash flow per month from that one investment. So pretty good from a percentage standpoint. How are you standpoint. finding the places? Yeah. So I'm just, uh, I have a realtor there. I have a team there actually that I work with. So realtor, property manager, all those kinds of people that help me find properties. I do kind of the heavy lifting of finding the properties, but I'm not doing anything too special. I'm not like, you know, cold calling people to, to see if they want to sell me their home. It's just the kind of traditional looking at listings, looking with the realtor, uh, that kind of stuff to find the properties. Remotely? All remotely. And you're doing it all on Zillow and then they take their phone around and they show you the, what the place looks like? Yep. Yeah. FaceTime sometimes. Although <laughs> recently I I've, haven't really the need to do that. I just kind of like trust my realtor and property manager because I've worked with them for several years now. But uh, when I was first starting out, yeah, I did a lot of FaceTiming, a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff to kind of be there virtually. What's the crypto stuff that you're investing in? Pretty heavily involved in uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Uh, nothing too crazy. I know there's lots of like better returns out there in terms of like maybe your risk allocation, but yeah, I'm pretty heavy in like Bitcoin and Ethereum primarily. I'm assuming you're you're buying them, hodling them, and then lending them out so you get a little bit extra. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That seems like the the play. Anything else for stocks? What are you doing? S and P or you're buying tech stocks? Yeah, actually a lot of tech stocks. Uh, you know, a lot of S and P as well. But uh, you know, there's a couple of tech stocks that I kind of just uh, feel a little more confident long term. Uh, Google is one of them. Uh, Amazon has been doing super well recently, but Amazon's one of them too. But yeah, nothing too risky in terms of like, I don't really go for like the meme stocks or all those, although you can make lots of money off that. But I guess, uh, you know, not that I've like made like many, many millions, but uh, I am kind of like, I guess more risk prone. I don't want to lose it all. So I'm 
doing like relatively more conservative, safer investments, although that's in the context yeah. of still, you know, pretty good growth, at least, you know, 10%, 20% per year. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's it for stocks. The company I think is just underappreciated is Spotify. And the only reason I think that is because it's so highly represented in my life. I know as a podcaster and as a podcast fan, they have the best podcast experience in like in the universal sense that they will work with every app that you have. I have a TV in the Airbnb. We never had TVs before because um, I'm against having that distraction. But the freaking TV takes Spotify. Our speakers play Spotify. My watch plays Spotify. It's like everything plays Spotify. And then they're hitting me with all these ads with their podcasts. And of course, you listen to the ads in the podcast because that's part of the experience. And I, I feel like they're they're underappreciated. Yeah. All right. Um, so it's good to have worked this hard. I know you consider yourself. I don't know why you consider yourself lazy. Why do you, why did you tell me before we got started? I'm just a lazy guy. Well, uh, maybe I'm not lazy now, but at least, uh, early on in my career, well, not in my career, but early on in my, in my life, I was definitely, uh, my parents thought I was pretty lazy. Um, you know, I was like pretty decent at the things I did, but I kind of give up pretty, pretty early, like soccer. I was pretty competitive, pretty good at, but I kind of got overwhelmed by that. I kind of quit early on. Uh, you know, and like a lot of my teammates, uh, well, a lot of my teammates from then are now like, you know, college uh, soccer people, some of them playing professionally too. So that was potentially something I could have done in the past, but I didn't really look into too much. But I was playing lots of video games. I spent lots of time doing that. Uh, stereotypical, you know. But when you're playing video games, hang on a second. Uh, when you were playing video games, though, you weren't trying to get more points. You were trying to get rich in the video game. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was always fun for me. I yeah, the game that I loved playing as a kid was called Maple Story, some online multiplayer type game. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the main point or the purpose of the game for most people was to, you know, beat monsters and level up your character and get stronger. And, <laughs> and that was all fun, too. But one aspect that was kind of a side aspect was, you know, collecting the, the in-game currency and, uh, you know, becoming rich in the game. So that was always the most fun for me. I, I just loved, like, you know, trying to, trying to hustle that way, get items, sell items, you know, work with people to get to get more money. That was always so much fun for me. All right. What was PA Crunch? And what the hell is with the name? Yeah. So PA Crunch, uh, good question on the name. It was a uh, personal assistant crunch. Uh, so obviously I was never okay. very good at making names. Uh, <laughs> PA Crunch wasn't maybe the... I don't know. I like Delasign. Yeah. My girlfriend actually came up with that name, so I can't take too much credit for that. <laughs> okay. So PA Sign was, was what? Personal assistant... Uh, PA Crunch was personal assistant crunch. So the idea was senior year of college, you were going to create a personal assistant service? That's how it kind of started out as uh, kind of a way for people to offload, you know, maybe their uh, design tasks, their marketing tasks, all kinds of things. That's kind of how it started out. I realized that I wasn't super good at doing uh, okay. all those kinds of things. So I focused on what I was best at, which at the time was Instagram marketing. And that's kind of what the service became. Well, let's pause for a second. So it wasn't going to be every kind of personal assistant service. It was just going to be around this design field, right? Uh, but within design, and tell me if I'm right. Yeah, so that's mostly right. It's, that's how I started out. But I realized I didn't really, I wasn't at the time super great at uh, making graphics and delegating that aspect. So I focused on what I was really good at at the time, which was Instagram marketing, uh, not the content creation, but, but more so like the outreach and the the engagement. And um, wait, Kenny, I'm intentionally, I'm intentionally slowing you down because that realization was a big one. It seems to me, you said we're going to do consulting work. It was the same kind of stuff that everyone does. Not no subscription or was it a subscription in the beginning? Uh, beginning? No. No subscription. So it was just like the same kind of thing that any kid 
would start out doing, I'll build your website for you. I'll do design work for you, right? Except you had bigger aspirations. And then the reason that I want to pause is you had five clients and then you had almost like a breaking point. You couldn't handle it. Why? And, and then I want to know how you got to the realization of you're shifting away from this everything to the focus on Instagram. But what was going on in your life that gave you this breaking point? Yeah. So like you mentioned, when I was starting, I was doing everything. And that was that was fine enough to kind of get me by in college. And I was making a, a little bit of money, uh, nothing too crazy, but enough. But I was also spending, you know, all of my free time on this business. I was doing everything from responding to emails to managing customers, managing our designers, managing our team. All that was super stressful and it was very unfocused. So um, I had the realization when I became uh, well, it's kind of a long story, but I, I eventually was able to get to a point where I was managing lots of different Instagram accounts. And I became very good at that one process of kind of interacting with client accounts okay. and doing all that. And I realized that, hey, if I could just focus on this, I could then delegate this to people that I hire. And instead of training them to do okay. every single thing, I could just train them to do this one task, which I was already very good at. Um, and that would make it so much, so much easier for me, so much more manageable for me to just train people to that one specific task and then scale it operation. I couldn't really scale the business that did everything because I mean, how would I even do that? That'd be too overwhelming for me, especially as a, as a college student. So by focusing on this one aspect that I was already good at, I could then make people that I hire the best at that task and make our company the best at that task. What were you doing on Instagram? Yeah, so when I, you were doing it yourself, when I was doing it myself, I was using our clients or my clients accounts to uh, find their target audience, interact with their target audience by commenting on their photos, liking their photos, following them, uh, direct messaging them, uh, doing things that would bring then traffic back to our clients page. So, for example, you can maybe have a restaurant in Los Angeles uh, and your target audience would be, you know, foodies in Los Angeles, people posting food photos uh, and the such in Los Angeles. So you can find these people based on the hashtags they use, based on the people they're following, uh, the locations they're tagging into, and then interacting with these people. Uh, that would then bring targeted traffic back to that page. Because if, you know, if I was in Los Angeles and I saw that some Los Angeles restaurant followed me and liked my photos, I would probably check them out. Uh... And then I'd see, Hey, this is a restaurant that's close by me. It looks pretty good food. I'm going to check it out. Um, so that's pretty much what we did in a nutshell for our clients. And then what was your process for getting new clients? Yeah, uh, a lot of ads initially, a lot of referrals as well, too. I think by the end, we had around, yeah, I think around like 600 clients or so for that business. Uh, it was a relatively pretty low okay. monthly rate per client. But uh, yeah, I think we had at least 600 clients for that. About four outsourced people on the team handling all the operations, too. I was spending maybe about a couple hours per month on that business towards the end. <laughs> Would you tell me a little bit more about the process for getting clients? Like once you had your your business and the model, you had to get more, say, restaurants. Getting restaurants to even pay attention to you is really challenging. What did you do? Or was it easier because they were on Instagram already and you could say, look, I, this is what I did for another restaurant. I could do it for you. Yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, restaurants weren't a huge uh percentage of our customer base, uh, but they were one aspect of them. Uh, a lot of them were like small business owners, uh, people that were already on Instagram and knew the power of Instagram. So actually just using our own service for ourselves uh, was pretty significant because they could see that, you know, obviously if they found us through Instagram, through our methods, they could realize that that would work for their clients as well. So it was a pretty easy sell for that. And so it was just messaging them on Instagram talking to them, closing the sale. And then do you, are you the type of person just for people who are listening, you're nodding. This is basically the, the model. Are you the type of person who is very quick to create playbooks? So you start to document what you did and start, you did, 
Exactly. Yes. What was that documentation process like back then? Yeah. So when you were doing the Instagram business? Yeah. I mean, like it was all about trying to separate myself from the business. That's the reason why I would create these documentations because I didn't want to spend, mm -hmm. you know, eight plus hours per day doing everything, repeating myself, training these people to do these things. So the documentation process was really just kind of thinking about what I would be doing and what I would be repeating and then putting that into text, putting that into instructions or video that can then be repeated by someone else besides myself. Okay. Um, and then how'd you hire? Yeah. So I hired, I know that was a challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a challenge for people that are inexperienced to hiring, but I hired all, uh, people online, people in the Philippines. I use, you know, various job platforms for that. Um, but I've worked with people in the Philippines for uh, at least like seven years now. So I have some experience doing that. Now you did, but back then you were making mistakes. T tell me about some of the mistakes you made in the early hires. Yeah, uh, I remember one of the first hires that I had, uh, I, I thought that she was really great and she's a great person, definitely, but she wasn't a great fit for a company. And because I was inexperienced, um, I kind of put up with those uh, those mismatches. So uh, it, it was kind of a nightmare, to be honest. Uh, she would sometimes not show up for work. I would have to cover her shift. Uh, she would have some excuses and maybe some of them were true, maybe uh. some of them weren't true. But because I was so new to my entrepreneurial journey, I kind of put up with that, thinking that if I got rid of her, I would then have to do all that work and that would be so stressful for me. So I think it was probably about a year or so that I put up with that, which sounds crazy, like looking back at it. But, you know, I was like always so stressed out. What if she didn't show up for a shift? What if she like logs off early and like no one's covering the all the work that needs to be done? And that was always on my mind. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, I, I can't get rid of her because she's, you know, she's doing pretty good work yeah. when she's there. And like, you know, if I got rid of her, <laughs> I would now have an extra like six hours of work per day at least to handle. So to me, that was like the biggest mistake was like not removing people that were a hindrance to, to my success early on. And you didn't have enough money, I'm assuming, to hire an extra person to double up while you were transitioning. Around. Yeah, not so much. I, I definitely could have like yeah. managed, I'm sure. But like I was always had that mindset of, OK, I got to maximize my profits. I got to maximize my efficiency. And, and I didn't see that happening by removing her. Of course, that was the correct play. But, you know, inexperience me back then, I just couldn't see that. All right, Kenny, I'm going to talk to you about my first sponsor. It's a company called Send In Blue for email marketing. Now, when I say Send In Blue, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, I guess good sending rates would be one thing. <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> if you were open with me, my guess is that you'd have the same thought that I had, which is who? Send In what? I thought there's like MailChimp and there's ConvertKit and all. Send In Blue. I'll tell you why it's worked so well for my audience and why people have signed up. I, I used to give the whole list of features and it's great. They've got marketing automation. They've got everything that you need to track the people that are coming through. But here's the thing that, that people loved. All the marketing automation tools without the ratcheting up of the price. It turns out, especially for people who manage lots of customers' email lists, when they sign up, they end up with a low price. When they get really big, that price shoots up and they feel that there's a lock-in and they can't get away from this company. And now the company is ratcheting up and ratcheting up the price. And meanwhile, the features are great, but they're not worth it. With Send in Blue, and this is what a lot of people have told me that they love about it, the price starts out low and it continues to be low. It's no ratcheting up. It's the kind of thing that especially if you've got lots of clients or if you've got a big email list yourself, you're going to appreciate. So I'm going to let everyone who signs up right now try it out right now and give you a discount 
of what is it, 50% for three months on the premium plans. And and frankly, it's already super low. I, I think that the reason that they're even giving us a 50% off for only three months is because the, how do you reduce an already low price, right? But they need it because otherwise no one's going to use my URL or my discount code, which means they can't track it. So they're giving us a discount on their already discounted price. But what's that noise in the background, Kenny? Yeah, that, that would be my bird, my parrot, Mango. She's uh, pretty excited about something. You got a parrot in the I house? I do have a parrot in the house, yeah. Doesn't drive you nuts? It can sometimes, yeah. Do they? Does the parrot give you any love or any affection? Yeah, so or she's any... a sun conure. She's Warm? actually very affectionate, uh, very jealous too uh, of other people especially. So if she sees someone walking around, mm-hmm. sees someone outside moving, she'll get a little threatened, kind of like a, do- a guard dog actually, <laughs> as, as you would not expect a small little parrot to be. All right, I'll close out the ad for Send in Blue by saying if you want to get started with them right now, you can use the discount code Mixergy, or you can go to this URL, which is sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Check out, they've got all the features that all the competitors have and then some, but they don't have that bulky price that ratchets up after their, you know, like their initial discount, look at how low it is, and then boom, you go, how, do, how are we now paying tens of thousands of dollars on email marketing? Which is a thing, Kenny, people have been doing it. All right, let's continue on with your story. So you built it up, you started hiring, you had a system, how much revenue did you get the business up to? Yeah, it was doing around 20K monthly revenue. Uh, you had four full-time people on the team and then myself. Uh, I think my net profit was per month around 8,000-ish, 10,000-ish or so towards the end. Okay. Why did you sell that business? Yeah, so kind of like the design, uh, a few reasons. One reason is that I was spending lots of time thinking about the business. Mental energy was kind of my, my big spending with this business. Uh, the other thing was that I wasn't sure the, the future of this business, the future viability of this business. Um, there were lots of other businesses that did kind of similar things. It wasn't too unique in that sense. And there were lots of competitors. Um, so I, I was kind of concerned the long-term longevity of a business like this. Uh, plus, towards the end, I was having trouble growing the business beyond what I was already doing. Um, it was doing around like 20K per revenue per month. And that was that was great, uh, but I was having trouble kind of reaching past that point. Uh, the methods I was doing wasn't really working to get beyond that. And uh, you know, like like with Delazign, I, I figured that if I sold the business, I would get a decent chunk, especially at the time of money that I could then use to focus on other businesses. And Delazign actually was one that I was spending some time on even before I sold PA Crunch. So having that money would really provide that uh, that comfortability to pursue Delazign full time. Uh. And focus my efforts on that. PA Crunch sold for how much? Uh, that was around three hundred thousand dollars. Three hundred thousand. You invested it also. Yeah, I invested that into crypto, into stocks, into Delazign partially as well too, and uh, real estate as well. Apart from the Delazign, what would you say now the the three hundred k is worth today? Uh, so I put yeah about like seventy k of that into Bitcoin at the time, and I think that was when Bitcoin was. I mean, so my average Bitcoin price is around like ten thousand, and I think at the time that was maybe around. So you five x it. It maybe around like eight thousand ish or so per Bitcoin. So okay. yeah, that one did about I don't know, like a times seven or so times eight. I guess actually, it's six x. It's more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. So for a guy who doesn't like risk, Bitcoin seemed like a risky investment. 
Yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, I was always pretty confident in Bitcoin. You know, one of my best friends in college and still best friend now, he was always like all in on crypto. He was always telling me about it, you know, even when it was like, you know, $1,000 or so. And uh, well, he's actually now the, the co-founder of QuickSwap, which is uh, the biggest decentralized exchange on Polygon for those that kind of know crypto. So uh, he's always been super in on crypto, always been telling me the benefits of crypto. And, uh, you know, when I when I had some money, I figured why not like put some of that into crypto. It was a bet on crypto, of course, but also kind of just like I had confidence in my friend and it was kind of a bet on him as well. So okay. um, all those things considered, I felt pretty confident. Okay. Um, so then the idea for Delazine came from where? Yeah. So Delazine is not a completely unique idea. Um, there were other services that provided uh, services just like Delazine. You know, Design Pickle is probably one of the biggest ones that most people yeah. are aware of. So um, I actually, you know, I saw an ad for other services like Design Pick on a few others. And I was thinking that, hey, this is pretty cool. Um, you know, there's lots of like, obviously benefits of a service like this. People love the service already. Um, I think I could do it better. So why not try doing a service like this? That was my initial thoughts. And, uh, you know, fortunately that kind of panned out pretty well. What did you think you could do better than Design Pickle and all the other people who were doing it? Yeah, so those services were great. Uh, but at the time, they only focused on graphic design. They wouldn't do website design. They wouldn't do uh, video editing, motion graphics, things like that. Now they do, actually. Uh, but at the time, they didn't do that. So that was one benefit I could provide. Uh, the other thing is that those services at the time, uh, they wouldn't provide any uh any designer in like the, the local US time zone. So if you wanted to submit a project, you submit it and then like they will work on it during like your nighttime and get back to you the next day with it. But you couldn't work with them directly and in real time. Um, so that's what I wanted to provide with our service to a real time designer that could actually work with you in real time. Meaning if I'm asking for a GIF, right? And you were doing GIFs, I think right from the that's beginning. Right. So it would be an animated uh, image for the top of a blog post. I could send the off send the request to the designer. The designer might come back and say, "Are you looking for it to move a lot or a little bit?" I respond, and then the designer gets the work done in in the day instead of waiting for me overnight for the, my response. That's right. That was a big thing. And meanwhile, though, your expertise was in hiring in the Philippines. Where did you decide that you'd get people for Delsign? Yeah, also in the Philippines too. And they were willing to work overnight. Yeah. So we had about half the team working overnight and about half the team working during their local uh, Philippine daytime hours. Have you ever gone to the Philippines to visit the people who worked for you? I have actually. Yeah, I, I've gone there. I've How met, was it? It was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I met a few people that yeah. I've worked with there. Not everyone, of course, but uh, yeah, it actually happened because of a layover in Guam that I, I ended up you know, spending, spending at least about a day or so in the Philippines. And yeah, that was pretty awesome. You had a layover in Guam? A layover to Guam, yeah. So I was going to Guam with a friend for his, his sister's wedding. And uh, it just so happened that Philippines is often one of the, the spots that you have to kind of stop at. So mm. it kind of worked out perfectly that way. Why, why were they doing it in Guam? Yeah, so my friend is originally from Guam. Uh, one of my best friends, actually. Um, and I've never even really heard of Guam before this, to be honest. But it's a, a nice uh, island uh, area. It's actually a U.S. territory. Um, so kind of like Hawaii in lots of ways. From what I understand, it's even more American like than America. <laughs> like it's the streets are American, the post office, like the whole thing. It's you think that you're in, I, I don't know, in the Pacific, but you're not. 
you think you're closer to Asia, but spiritually, there's so much more like America from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. Which they are America. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful place. Hmm. Um, so when you built it up, where'd you get your first customers? Yeah, so very, very first customers were people that I had connections with already, uh, friends, people on my network. It was more so to get kind of an idea of how well the service was working. Uh, I would give out the service for free to some people in exchange for their feedback, their testimonials, anything I could do to kind of get the feedback loop going on. So that was our initial first customers. Some of those people converted into paid customers. Um, but I would say the biggest thing for us for our initial early traction was our product hunt launch. Uh, so we launched it on Product Hunt uh, around Christmas time. Actually, I think it was exactly on Christmas on 2019, I believe. And uh, we got mm -hmm. number two product of the day, um, which resulted in us being on their email list, on Product Hunt's email list. That got us lots of traction. That got us uh, a decent amount of early customers. Uh, some of those customers were actually still customers when I left Delazine. Um, so that was like our first, our first win, I would say. And this was when, not when you were listing the design service, when I think you were offering free images or something, right? So I also did that too. We launched on Product Hunt twice. Uh, the first one was, of course, our, okay. our normal service, but the second one was like a free offering of digital illustrations, digital images that uh, people could use for their businesses. And they both did well, you're saying? Yeah, actually, both of them got number two product of the day on Product Hunt. Ah, okay. And then you decided, you know what, if it's working well, I can actually pay to keep bumping this up. How did that work for you? Yeah. So we got, we got very fortunate that early on, we found a very uh, viable method of customer acquisition for Delazine. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, Delazine is not a unique service. There were several other services out there. Um, so that told me that there was a demand for a service like this. Um, I didn't have to worry about like explaining this idea to customers because a lot of people that were interested in a service like this already, of course, knew that a service like this existed. So I wouldn't have to worry about educating the customer about how our service worked. It was just about, you know, how can I compare my service with the existing competition and show that I'm, you know, our service is better fitted for them than the other services. So uh, our method of acquisition was primarily through Google ads. Uh, we would target keywords of other competitors. And I would say like that was about $200 cost per acquisition for our customers. Um, and you know, our, our LTV was like at least 3000, if not like 4,000. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew that our LTV was much higher than $200, of course. So, uh, you know, I, I pretty mm. much focused pretty heavily on the ads once I realized that. Were you the one buying the ads, Kenny? That's right. Yeah, I kind of learned from scratch on doing ads too. Because I, th I think you were charging $500 even back then a month, right? Minimum? Yeah, it was it was a little bit lower back then, but yeah, now it's around like $500. Yeah, now it's $500 and $600. And so you probably were breaking even on a customer within a month or two. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome actually. That is amazing. And this was you figuring it out. I have to tell you, I don't know you super well. You don't seem like you're super connected in the tech space. Who was it that was in, I feel like you've got your social circle. Who was it that was in your circle that you could go in and say, I've got this new design service and basically launch it off the back of your friends? Were you in the e-commerce world? Were you doing something else? No, not so much. I mean, I just had 
some friends who are entrepreneurs themselves, uh, not crazy amount of like entrepreneur friends, but enough to kind of get this uh, tested out with people. So, you know, I definitely wasn't very well connected back then. I'm still working on that actually, but uh, you know, enough people to at least help me leverage that into some success. I feel like you should have done it before, but now you're doing it. Why? Why are you here doing this podcast with me where I get to ask you how much (laughs) money you made and where you're putting it? I'm asking you basically everything except who you're sleeping with. What's what gives? Why are you deciding to come out and talk to people? Yeah. So, I mean, for one, I do enjoy talking about this. It is fun for me to talk about, you know, what I've done, the lessons I've learned, the mistakes I've made. So all that's fun for me. So that's that's the first thing I would say. But, you know, the second thing is that I do want to share my message and connect with other people as well. Um, You know, I realized, especially early on in my career, without connections, it was very difficult for me to really succeed as an entrepreneur. It was kind of like playing on hard mode, I would say. Um, so being able to kind of improve that by making more connections is is a huge win for me for my future endeavors. And, uh, you know, I, I want to improve upon being able to do that. So that's a big reason why I want to do this podcast and podcasts in general is because I want to you know share my story, see if it resonates with people. And if so, have them connect with me and, you know, possibly even work together in the future. What is your future endeavors? Because we're, we'll close the story out in a moment, but. You're now working with uh, appraisers. It's not like you're going to find an audience of appraisers <laughs> here on Mixergy. Yeah, probably not. What do you have in mind? Yeah, so so that business is pretty interesting. Uh, I have one of my good friends. He used to be a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, making like lots of good money, but you know, spending like pretty much all his day working, and that was pretty stressful. But uh, he decided to stop doing that and to instead become a home appraiser, which sounds crazy for most people. Uh, you know, because this it is does. it's a job that doesn't require a high school degree even. I mean, it's a job that's people probably don't think about when they think about earning, you know, seven figures per year. But uh, actually, yeah, as a home appraiser, he's making over a million dollars per year, uh, which it sounds ridiculous, especially because he's spending like 40 hours per week. But um, there's there's lots of money that could be made uh, by being a home appraiser. So uh, we figured, you know, why not provide a service to allow these people to become more efficient with their time to delegate the things that they don't have to really be doing and, you know, in turn, allow them to have more time to then make more money. Uh, so that was kind of our idea. And, uh, that's what we, that's what we've been focusing on now, a service to allow these home appraisers to delegate their work. So what they do is the way that you've built up the service, what's it called? It's called appraisal saver, appraisal saver.com. Appraisal saver. And so with appraisalservice.com, an appraiser would go into a house, take pictures, they get uploaded to you, your team bases their appraisal on the photos and then sends it back to the appraiser and says, here's the, here's the value. That's right. So yeah. the appraiser is just going and taking photos? That's pretty much it. And the reason that they could do it instead of just some random person that you hire is that the appraiser needs to have what? You can't just hire the same type of people that Uber would. Yeah, they have to be certified. There's a regulation in place, some laws in place that you know kind of like govern this. But you have to be a certified appraiser to do this, and that takes about uh, you know it takes some training, takes some time to actually do that. So not just anyone can do that. Although perhaps in the future maybe things will change. But the hard part is actually doing the appraisal. It's not getting out to the spot and looking for things that need to be identified. Yeah, the, the time consuming part is definitely actually making the, the report. So pretty much as an appraiser, you're making like a report on the, the home value. And that's kind of like a, a PDF file that is then produced. But uh, that process takes maybe about three hours, whereas actually going to the home and taking the pictures and taking notes, that takes maybe about one hour. So 
by using a service, by delegating, you're pretty much saving, you know, three to four hours. And then you're only spending about one hour of work. So, you know, one report in the Bay Area, at least that can net you up to like $2,000, uh, maybe more like 1500 on average. But, you know, pretty much now your your hourly rate becomes, you know, $1,000 for one hour. So that's pretty good for most people. Okay, that's great. Let me talk. Let me talk about my sponsor with you, and then we'll come back and figure out what happened to Delasign, what, uh, and then what's going on future wise for you. Second sponsor is HostGator. Kenny, if someone's listening to us and going, "Whoa, this guy Kenny took a business that was already basically productized, a service that was productized, and sold that on a subscription basis, which was designed. Now he's doing the same thing for appraisers. I want to do the same thing. Maybe I'll go to HostGator, like Andrew's telling me, get a website." But I need an idea. What's a service, Kenny, that you would look at and say that could be turned into a productized service the way that the Kenny businesses were? Yeah, I think there's lots of things. You know, one thing is development as a service. Uh, you know, lots of people need design, of course, and that's why I made Dell Design. But lots of people also need website design. Um, so if you can provide that kind of as a, a subscription-based model, I think that could be you know very valuable. I feel like that's been done. Let me think a little bit outside the box with you. Okay, okay? sure. And if you disagree with me, disagree with me. Let's enjoy this. I wonder if there's room to do like spreadsheets as a service. I send you the data, you put it in spreadsheets. There are people who are just amazing with spreadsheets. Is there like a notion as a service? Is there, what do you think of that? Yeah, that could be something. How would we, how would you test it to see if creating a spreadsheet as a service business would make sense? What's the Kenny approach to test? Yeah. So my approach is always getting as much feedback as I can. I think trying to sell early, even before it's not actually built out is very valuable. Uh, you know, lots of people, lots of new entrepreneurs, they, they have this like amazing idea in their head, uh, and they kind of hide it because they think, oh, someone's going to steal it from me. Someone's going to beat me to market. I don't want to risk that. So I'm going to hide it, but that's only a hindrance because then you're not actually getting real feedback. You don't know if your business actually has value and you're not, you know, making iterations based on that. So my thing, my approach is always to get feedback as soon as possible, you know, make a waitlist page, try to sell it to people, cold email, cold, cold approaches like that. But whatever you can get people to, to view the product, to test the product and get their feedback from there. All right. I feel like the challenge with the spreadsheet uh, business is it's hard to find the people who need spreadsheet support like that. It might be easier to pick, and I've said this in the past, to pick software that's going hot and then create a service that does that. Like Notion now is just really getting exciting for some people. And you can imagine somebody saying, I'm going to create a Notion help site, but really what it'll be is we'll do your Notion design for you. Um, I saw that Zapier has gotten really good at, at catering to people who need service providers. They're like people who all they do is do Zapier work. And now Zapier, I think, on their site introduces uh, their users to people who are Zapier consultants. But it seems like it's, what do you think of that? Picking software that's hot, creating a service that does the software for people. So all they have to do is say, here's what I want in Notion, and then someone will do it for them. And then catering to a bunch of different software like that. Yeah, I think that's a cool idea. And it, it's kind of like it builds off of my experience of Delazine in the sense that uh, with Delazine, we focused on people that were using these other services like Design Pickle, for example, and we marketed towards them. So mm -hmm. with a service that was built off an existing you know, software, you can then target people that use that software through you know, Facebook ads, Ooh, Google yeah. ads. So that could be a pretty easy way to get these uh, potential customers. 
And if you could find some software that's on a site, then you can start going to built with and tools like that, seeing who's got the software on their site and then targeting them and saying, do you need help with it? All right, listen up people, whether it's this idea or anything else, don't get into the appraisal business. That's Kenny's business. Whatever your idea is, when you need a website, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy because when you go to HostGator, they'll give you a great low price service that just works and then you'll be able to concentrate on your business. And of course, I'm giving you the cheapest, least, I shouldn't say cheapest, least expensive uh, offering. They will scale up with you. We've moved on to uh, their better and more robust services that are still way cheaper than the competition and they just work well and allow us to focus on our business. And I recommend you sign up for them too. If you go to their site, you'll get a low price. If you use my URL, you'll get an even lower price. Here's the URL, hostgator.com slash Mixergy, hostgator.com slash Mixergy. All right. You kept growing the business and at some point you figured it's time for me to sell this one too. And then you went to FE International. Why do you use FE International? And this is the second time you use yeah, them. Yeah, second time I use them. Uh, for me, at least, uh, when I sold my first business, I, I had no idea how to sell a business. Uh, you know, my biggest fear was that I would try to sell it on my own. I maybe get a few offers, and then I would maybe get scammed. So I didn't want to avoid. I, I didn't want to have a situation in which I could, you know, one get scammed, of course, and then two maybe not get the best offer, and then three maybe not even find buyers because I didn't really have buyers in my connection in my network. So. Uh, I needed someone that could provide me that service. And, you know, FE International is, uh, I would say, the number one provider of that service. So it was only natural to at least inquire with them. And then once I did, they were very helpful. Uh, you know, I love, you know, just talking with them. They're very knowledgeable. And uh, it was clear that they provided me with a good service. And I felt very confident from the start. And what did they do that keeps you from getting scammed? Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, it wasn't really me that would have to to actually do the operations of selling the business. Uh, they handled all that for me. They, of course, vetted the buyers to make sure they actually had the funds available. So that's, of course, a given. But beyond that, they provided all the contracts that we would sign. Uh, they made sure the onboarding went smoothly and all that. So I really didn't have to do too much besides just kind of hand over the keys. Okay. What's the percentage that they take at FE? Yeah, so it ranges, but it's among, it's between like five to fifteen percent. You know, five percent on the the higher selling businesses, and then you know fifteen percent on the the lower ones. So for for PA Crunch, it was about fifteen percent. Okay, I feel like one of the things that they do is they've got this group of buyers that they go back to because they're rabid buyers, right? That's right. They've worked with viewers. Yeah, it feels like they're, they're a handful of people who are not exactly rolling up tech businesses, but they're just buying a bunch of them and they're doing what, you do, what you're doing with real estate, right? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> All right. So how's the new business doing? Yeah, so it's still pretty new. We have a few paying clients and uh, we have about five uh, appraisal assistants on our team. So it's still growing. Uh, you know, it's, it's different than Delazine in the sense that our target audience is now very focused. Uh, whereas Delazine, it was pretty much for anyone that needed design services. Whereas for this one, it's only appraisers. So, uh, the good thing about that is that, you know, once we get a customer and once we show them the value, it's pretty difficult to lose them because especially for our service, we directly provide them with revenue. Uh, so if they, if they cut us, they'd lose that revenue they then have. So, there's that benefit, but the, the downside, mm -hmm. of course, is that it's a, it's a much more specific audience. So kind of targeting the audience initially can be more difficult to reach because it's so much smaller. 
what what do you do to find them? It feels like yes, it is smaller, but they've got to be ways to get their contact information and pitch. Yes, them. that's exactly it. So one way is through LinkedIn. What do you uh, do? That's one approach, you know, because okay. of course people list their their career and their their job position on LinkedIn. So targeting appraisers is pretty simple that way. Uh, same thing. So you mean by you buying ads? On uh, LinkedIn? No, just actually like outreach to these people. Although we actually did buy ads for LinkedIn too. But the main approach is just to you know search for people on LinkedIn, connect with them send them a message and, and do that. Uh, what do you use to automate that? Yeah, so I mean, there are platforms for that and I, I've tried a few of yeah. them, but uh, I, I kind of got kind of weirded out when I got some like notices from LinkedIn about potential like, you know, automation that's against the rules. So I don't use any software for that, although I do use one of my assistants to do the messaging for me. So the assistant sends out the initial messages and then when a person's interested, you jump in or a salesperson that's jumps right. in or is it still yeah. the assistant? It is. So it's like the assistant's like an SDR. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And from what I've seen on LinkedIn, and I can't believe that people respond, it's like you send a response. And if your SDR sends a response, you need to be there in real time to come back in and, and follow up, right? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the sooner you can respond, the better. And it's still you doing that part of the sales process? Actually, so my, my partner is the one in charge of that. I am kind of like sending the messages out, right? I make the instructions to send out, but my partner, one of the, an actual appraiser, He's the one that kind of handles that sales stuff. Uh, okay. All right. And so you were saying same thing for what else? What what other approaches are you taking to get Yeah. So customers? just like uh, with Design, you know, I, I spend a lot of focus on actually like targeting Google ads based on keywords that would show intent to purchase. Uh, so one intent to purchase is, you know, keywords related to being an appraiser, uh, people that are looking for data entry services as an appraiser. Uh, targeting those keywords has been pretty effective for us. All right. And so long, by the way, before I go long-term, I'm wondering why so many people are sending messages using LinkedIn's e, uh, in-mail system. Why don't you just use a service to grab the email addresses and message them off of the platform? Yeah, that's that's pretty smart too. You haven't done that yet? I have yet. not done that yet. I've done that for Delazine actually, but have not done that yet for this. You want to know like an evil thing that I think <laughs> okay, could work? That? All right. You get their email address. Get another Mac with another iCloud account, and you just put the email address in there, and you text message them <laughs> until you get kicked off the text yeah, messaging platform, and then you come in with yeah. another email address, right? Like, hey, are you? St oh, I don't know exactly what the messaging would be, but it just seems like this whole iMessage thing is just way too open for for, for manipulation. It this is way. pretty open. I mean, maybe a less evil version of that is to then get all their email addresses and then put that into Facebook and do a retargeting campaign off those. Uh, you're not like directly, Ooh. you know, approaching them, annoying them, but you're still showing your yourself to them at least. All right, I don't like the evil <laughs> way. It makes me feel uncomfortable, but I, but I want to talk yeah, about no, that's, that. That's something. Um, <laughs> All right, long term, Kenny. What are you doing? What's what's the vision? Like you, I, I I talked about how I have a vision that you're going to do something beyond the appraisal business that you're queuing up connections for. What's the thing? What are you looking to do long? -term? Yeah, so I mean, like I mentioned, long term, I want to be able to, of course, have that passive income to support myself, so that no matter what I do, I have that safety net. So that's what I'm working on now. Uh, by doing that, I'm getting you know more real estate, more cash flow producing investments. Um, to allow me to have that, you know, significant amount of income that, that can be passive, that can support myself so that regardless of what I do in the future, I always have that. Uh, but of course, my ambitions are higher than that, too. Um, I do want to work on a project that potentially can be a, you know, a very, very big company, a very successful company. So 
you know, one of those things I'm working on now is a business called Closin. It's just a C-L-O-S-I-N.com. It's a, a platform for startup founders to uh, manage their investors. So people that already have Series A, Series uh, you know B even, uh, seed funding, people that want to uh, manage their investors better, their board members, uh, they can do that through our platform. It's still early stage, but it's, you know, it's one of my first SaaS type businesses. I've always focused on the SaaS type model, but for, you know, actual existing non-software businesses. So I want to kind of transition my experience and now push an actual SaaS product. And this is one that I hope to do that with. And so is this a way to, to update investors or to keep track of of your investors or yeah what? it's a way to uh kind of communicate with your investors in a, a more streamlined process you know a lot of people that have investors they communicate through you know phone calls slack kasana email whatever and it, it can be kind of mm. overwhelming especially when there's lots of moving pieces and lots of different investors so having one platform to manage all that uh to kind of negotiate with them to manage their contracts their documents have it all in one place can be uh you know a lot more efficient you know what I'd like to see someone else create? And I could see why this, why Closin fits in with being here and getting out more and talking to more entrepreneurs. I, I wish that somebody would create a platform to keep track of all the startup investments that an, an, an angel investor makes. And that would mean that some people are on angel. I've made a few angel, angel investments. Some are on AngelList. I forget what Sahil is using. He's using Republic. And then uh, Mercury. I, I love Mercury Bank. It's a great company. I asked if I could invest. Um, so I got to invest a little bit in that just a few days ago using WeFunder, I think. Then there's some that are completely off the platform that are direct relationships. So it's like, I got to create a spreadsheet to keep track of where it is. And then there's no... I don't know. Maybe maybe the truth is that is what's I forget that app that we're that some of them are using. Um, shoot, I forget what that is. Maybe one of these apps will just suck in data from all the other apps. But it sucks that this stuff is out there. And I have a feeling that I'm not going to go to Republic.com again. And then at some point they're going to say this act, this account is deactivated, and then I'll lose the little bit of ownership. It's like a thousand dollars in Sahil's Gumroad. Uh, I think that was his limit. But there's no way to keep track of it. Do you make angel investments? What do you use? Yeah, so I don't make angel investments yet, although that's one thing I want to kind of look more into. I have some friends that are angel investors and, uh, you know, thankfully Closin is one platform that kind of allows you as an angel investor as well to manage your investments too. Uh, having one place to kind of have all of that, uh, to interact with the founders, the board members and all that. Uh, so it's not just for the founders themselves, oh. but also for anyone that's involved uh -huh. in the investment process. So I can go into Closin and then somehow list all the other investments that I've made. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're still in beta right now. We're still kind of like developing all the features, but one feature we want to have is to allow these, you know, angel investors to manage all their investors, uh, manage all their companies that they're investors in. And then, so that's really helpful. I feel like also knowing the other investors in the, in around is helpful yeah. to be able to yeah. communicate with them and say, is this guy going a little nuts here? <laughs> Should we just rein the person in or is, is, this person in need of help um so i guess you're putting all that in how much would you charge an investor to to keep yeah, track of their investments that's a great question We're, we still haven't actually determined a price point yet uh, we do want to have a monthly rate of course to do all that uh but yeah what do you think that would be worth 
If it's just keeping track of the investments, you're basically replacing a spreadsheet and there's not enough value to make it worthwhile. But if there's more to it, if you're solving more of the problems, then there's there's more value there. Um, and by more of the problems, I guess I would mean keep track of how many updates you're getting. Are, I, the problem is that a lot of people are now going through AngelList um, through some of the AngelList systems where there is no obligation to give any feedback to investors, any updates to investors. It's kind of funny that their whole thing is you go to make an investment and they go, um, you have to agree that you will get no information, <laughs> that you have no say in the company. Um, it's like the special, uh, what is it called? Those those investment vehicles. Uh, so I, I, you can't even say that the, that the entrepreneur has to come use closing to send information back, which is kind of disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of cases in which like, of course, everyone wants to know this information, but there's no way to really collaborate effectively with that information. So our, our goal is kind of like, I guess you could think of it like a very high level as kind of being Google Forms, but a Google Forms in which you can actually collaborate and make real-time communication and back and forth changes and edits on. Um, so for example, you want to maybe make some changes to the contract that can then be a, an edit that's done through closing. And then that gets, you know, up, updated and populated all within the closing platform in real time. And you can make comments back and forth to say, hey, let's change this, let's change that, and not have to worry about having like 10 platforms to manage all that communication. I think the communication back to investors is helpful if it encourages the the entrepreneur to make requests of the angels, especially now that there are more and more angels, you need a way to be able to say, I need you to do this, or who in my angel group can do that? Or we now have this new product, can you help us get more customers? And as as investors, you want to feel like you're doing more than just sitting back and waiting 10 years for the for the payoff, right? Um, all right. I like where you're going with this. I'm hoping the two of us will get to talk again. I'd like to see where where you end up with your Absolutely. investments. And frankly, these two freaking businesses are, are I like I like the way you're thinking with yeah, this. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. I wish you were taking investments. <laughs> I might have to. <laughs> All right, we'll keep on talking. Um, thanks so much for being on yeah, here. Thanks so much, Andrew. It was a lot of fun for me. Oh, wait, I didn't ask you about the hat. What's the deal with the hat? Why are you wearing the Friends hat? It looks like it's the Friends logo, but what does it say on top yeah, of the word says, Friends? Yeah, uh, it says Real Friends on it. I just thought it was a kind of quirky, kind of fun hat. So, you know, why not pick it up? All right, there's no like big meaning. No, I here. wish I had some philosophical, you know, like amazing realization behind this. But no, just a kind of cool hat for me. All right. <laughs> right on. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I, I especially want to thank the sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you need an email provider that will be reasonable with you and give you all the features of, I mean, we're talking about marketing automation, understanding when somebody bought and tagging them differently, when somebody clicked on something, tagging them differently, all those features at a reasonable price, go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. And of course, when you need a website, go to HostGator, HostGator.com slash Mixergy. Kenny, good to meet you. You too, man. Andrew. Thanks so much. <laughs> I say just as you're reaching out for a drink. All right, <laughs> bud. Bye. Bye, everyone.